Section 36 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombau. Homicide, Part 13. The Gossaderzook Tragedy, Part 12. The jury were withdrawn at this point of the case, and a discussion ensued, before the court alone, as follows. Mr. Hayes, the Commonwealth's attorney, said that they proposed to show that W.S. Goss, alias A.C. Wilson, within about a year prior to the burning of a house on the York Road, in Baltimore, Maryland, February 2, 1872, procured sundry insurances upon his life to the extent of $25,000. At the time this fire took place, William E. Utterzook and others alleged that Goss was burned to death, and the prisoner at the bar made an affidavit to that fact and presented it to the insurance companies for the purpose of procuring the sum insured for Mrs. Eliza W. Goss, in whose benefit the insurances were written. The prosecuting counsel further proposed to show the institution of suits against the several insurance companies, the appearance of the prisoner as chief witness in behalf of Mrs. Goss, the result of the test suit, the motion for a new trial, setting forth that the insurance companies would show, if time were given them, that W.S. Goss was still living, and that it was while this motion was pending before the court, the prisoner persuaded A.C. Wilson, alias W.S. Goss, to meet him in Philadelphia at the William Penn Hotel, and took him thence to Jennerville, and thence to a point at or near Bears Woods for the purpose of murdering him, and there murdered him. Mr. McVeigh, the prisoner's counsel, argued strongly against the admissibility of such evidence. The prisoner was not on trial for a conspiracy to defraud insurance companies. The offer of the Commonwealth's attorney was an effort, in part at least, to introduce the acts and declarations of an alleged co-conspirator as against his alleged murderer on a trial for his life. If the prisoner was now upon trial for conspiracy with W.S. Goss to defraud these insurance companies, and previous evidence had been introduced as to concert of action between them, the acts and declarations and conduct in every respect of Goss, bearing possibly upon the conspiracy, might, under the latitude that prevails in reference to this matter, be admitted. But when the conspiracy is ended, when the relations have changed, and the relations of hostility commenced, and the hostilities alleged to have been carried to the point of murder, and the prisoner is upon trial for his life, charged with having murdered a co-conspirator, then, the counsel argued, the saving efficacy of another rule can be invoked in the prisoner's favor, that only such acts as are immediately and directly concerned with him are to be given in evidence against him. The Court the court does not fail to understand the importance of this offer to the prisoner as well as to the commonwealth. It may be that some parts of the offer are not evidence. The main features of the offer, however, are evidence that we must hear. It is the right of the prisoner to have the benefit of every reasonable doubt, as well in regard to law as to facts, 
and nothing will be admitted or has been admitted to the commonwealth in respect to which the court has entertained a doubt, and nothing will be excluded that may be offered by the defendant in reference to which the court may have a doubt. The main features of the evidence offered bear upon two branches of the cause. First, the identity of the man who was known as A.C. Wilson with Goss. Second, the motive which may have actuated the prisoner. There is evidence for the consideration of the jury that this man, known in New Jersey as Wilson, was Goss. But Goss belongs in Baltimore. Now it is proper that the Commonwealth should show, indeed it is necessary that it show, why it is that this man is there living as he lived and known by another name. It is very important. If they fail to show it, the argument will be no motive shown for change of name. No motive for this man residing in New Jersey who belonged in Baltimore. There is evidence for the consideration of the jury that this man was seen in New Jersey subsequently to the fire and subsequently to the commencement of the suits against the life insurance companies. If the jury believe that evidence and find that this man Wilson was Goss, it would be for them to reach a conclusion which would to them seem to follow that Goss had entered into a corrupt scheme to obtain money from the insurance companies and thus the motive is at once shown why he should disappear from Baltimore, and why he should change his name and hide from the world as Goss. Thus it is seen that in that respect the testimony must be heard. What he said, thus far we have not heard and do not propose to hear. The fact that he was insured, the fact that there was a fire, and that Goss is alleged to be dead may be shown. Then there is another aspect in which the testimony must be heard. As it is shown in evidence, this man after the fire appeared in New Jersey under an assumed name. Now it is proposed to show that the prisoner at the bar, under this condition of circumstances, made affidavit that he was dead, which affidavit was the basis of the suits against the insurance companies, that he appeared as the main witness in those suits, testifying that he was dead. Now, if the jury finds that Goss, at that time, was living in New Jersey under an assumed name, then it would seem to result that the prisoner was also in the scheme and perpetrated a fraud against the insurance companies. The conclusion would seem to be legitimate that he was to have a portion of the fruits. To keep Goss concealed from the world was necessary not only for the success of this fraud, but also to secure the prisoner against consequences which might follow discovery and exposure. Thus a motive may be found for concealing him in the most effectual way by taking his life when, peradventure, it was discovered that a concealment without it could no longer be successful. It is in these aspects of the case that the court thinks the offer is proper and the testimony must be heard. The court will note an exception to the whole offer, and to every part of it, and will overrule it at present only in respect to a part. The jury were then recalled. Evidence was now introduced giving the history of the insurance written upon the life of Goss, and of the facts relating to the fire upon the York Road, together with the medical testimony as to the examination of the charred remains found in the ruins. It was substantially the same as that given at the insurance trial, 
and it is therefore unnecessary to reiterate it here. A few additional facts, which furnished cumulative or corroborative evidence, appeared in this testimony. Louis Engel testified that Goss sometimes called Utterzook doctor when addressing him. Engel also described the double ratchet screwdriver model, which Goss had frequently exhibited as being his own invention. One new and important fact appeared in the evidence of Thomas D. Laudenslager, who testified as follows. I reside in Baltimore. I am acquainted with the prisoner at the bar. For about three years and a half, we worked together at the same shop, in the employ of Joseph Thomas and Son, on Clay Street, Baltimore. He first worked for them about eighteen months, then left for a while, and then came back again and worked about eighteen months longer, when he was discharged. The time he was discharged was about two months after the fire on the York Road. On the day of the fire, a box came to our place and was unloaded and set on the pavement. That was in the forenoon, and after dinner it was taken away by Utterzook and W.S. Goss in an express wagon. At the time it arrived, I was in the second story of the factory, looking out the doorway, and was quite near them. The box was four or five feet or more in length, and about fifteen inches wide and high. It was closed up all round. Utterzook came up to where I was, after helping to unload the box, while it was still there on the pavement. Three other workmen and myself were standing together. One of them asked him what was in the box, and he said it contained machinery for their laboratory on the York Road. Cross-examination. The box was taken away in an express wagon soon after one o'clock that same afternoon. It was brought there in an express wagon between ten and twelve in the forenoon. It was placed on the street pavement. It came there and was taken away the same day of the fire on the York Road. The fire occurred that night, and I heard of it the next morning. I have always lived in Baltimore. I first made known the facts about this box, soon after the discovery of this murder. I knew of the insurance suits, and of the contest being over the remains found there on the York Road. I did not give information at the time about this box, because I did not want to be subpoenaed. To the court. Utterzook was working in our establishment at the time of the fire. He worked there in the morning of the day when the box came, but not in the afternoon. William B. Crockett. I reside in Newark, New Jersey. I am a merchant dealing in gentlemen's furnishing goods. I knew a man who boarded in Mulberry Street, who was known to me by the name of A.C. Wilson. He called at my store two or three times. He was a man of near six feet, probably shorter, not taller. He had side whiskers, was a well-built man, neck about sixteen inches. The photograph heretofore introduced in evidence was handed to witness. I recognized the man standing as the man to whom I sold goods in my store in Newark. I sold him a shirt, some socks, and a pair of collars. I have never seen the shirt since, nor the stockings, nor the collars. No one has since described them to me, nor have I ever heard or read any description of either of them. We have a system in our store of marking shirts. It is a system that does not exist anywhere else to my knowledge. 
I have with me a box of shirts marked in the way which is peculiar to our store. We have used this mark about five years. The manner of our marking is this. We start with the number 35, which is our lowest number, and adjoining the number is the letter E. Next to the letter is the size of the neckband, then comes the length of the sleeve. We have different grades. That is our lowest grade. The next grade is 45E, neck and sleeve as before. The next is 48E, neck and sleeve. Next, 545E, neck and sleeve. Then 58E, 67E, 625E, and lastly 6ME. On some of our shirts is a star at the end of the lettering which denotes the extra size of the yoke. The E upon the shirts I have described means open back with eyelets in the bosom. Without the E, they are open fronts with buttons. The number denotes the quality. The marks are placed on the front of the shirt, on its skirt, and will not easily wash out. Another peculiarity of our shirts is the shape of the tab at the bottom of the bosom, placed there to hold the bosom down. The stamping is done with type. I do not recollect the quality of shirt I sold to A.C. Wilson. It was in June last, but I cannot say what day. The shirt found in the grave, in Bear's Woods, and heretofore introduced in evidence, was handed to witness, with a request that he should examine it carefully. That is our shirt. The tab is the same, and marked 545E, 1634. I speak with confidence. The size of the neck is 16 inches, and the length of sleeve 34 inches. William S. Hines I reside in Baltimore, am a merchant tailor, was acquainted with W.S. Goss, having known him about sixteen years. I have done work for him, and now have his measure. My last measure for him is for a black frock coat. It was taken July 27, 1866, and is entered upon my book as follows. Length of waist, 19 inches. Whole length of coat, 40 inches half width of back, seven and three-fourths inches, at the elbow, twenty inches, whole length of sleeve, thirty-two inches, breast measure, thirty-six and one-half inches, waist, thirty-four inches. The coat identified by Mrs. Toombs of Newark was handed to witness. This coat has very much the appearance of my make of coat at that date. It is an old-fashioned coat now, the sleeve linings and inside work still retain the marks of my manufacture. The measurements compare exactly with the measure I took of W.S. Goss. My custom is to write the name of the person for whom the coat is made, or his initials, upon the inside of the loops by which the coat is hung up. There is a name or letters written upon this, but it has become so indistinct as to be barely discernible. The Court Suppose you try a magnifying glass upon it. Witness, after examining with a magnifying glass, I see what appears to be W.S., but the remainder of the writing I cannot make out. Robert H. Hodgson. I reside in New London, Chester County, am acquainted with Mr. Utterzook, the prisoner at the bar. I saw him on the 28th day of June last, late in the afternoon, in the city of Wilmington, Delaware. 
he took a seat by my side in the cars and rode with me from Wilmington to Philadelphia. We left the cars together, separated at the depot, and I have not seen him since until I saw him here. We conversed much of the time while in the cars. He told me he was going to New York. He told me he had come from Baltimore. It was on the last Saturday in June, the 28th. Josiah Jacobs. I reside in Philadelphia, am clerk and bartender in the William Penn Hotel. I recognize the prisoner at the bar as a man whom I saw on the 28th day of June last. He came to the hotel and asked for A.C. Wilson, who was then in his room, and I showed the prisoner to Wilson's room. I knocked at the door and told Wilson a friend was there to see him. The prisoner was at once admitted to the room. I saw him again at breakfast the next morning. He brought no baggage with him, and he and Wilson both went away immediately after breakfast. Wilson arrived at the hotel on the 26th of June before dinner. He brought no baggage at first, but that afternoon he brought to the hotel a leather valise. He registered his name in my presence. The register of the William Penn Hotel, under date of June 26, 1873, was handed to witness, who identified the name of A.C. Wilson as the name he saw registered. Mr. Utterzook did not register. Wilson remained in his room much of the time while at the hotel. Francis M. Pyle. I am a farmer by occupation and reside in West Grove, Chester County, Pennsylvania. I saw the prisoner at the bar on Monday, the 30th of June last, in the forenoon. I was at the time putting hay into my barn when I heard footsteps on the barn floor, and upon looking I saw two men, one of whom I recognized as William Utterzook. The other man was a stranger to me. I went up and spoke to them, and they answered me. Utterzook spoke as though he did not know me, at least I thought so. I have known his mother and his two brothers since about 1854, and I at once recognized him. I asked him if they were strangers in the neighborhood. Utterzook replied they were, and that they had come from the city for a little recreation and to go fishing along the creek. I went to my house and left them at the barn. I was absent at my house about half an hour, and then on coming out I met Utterzook, who asked me if he could get a pie at my house. I referred him to the women and told him they were pretty busy as it was washing day. He went into the house, and I went to my barn. Soon afterwards I saw Utterzook with my little boy going towards the stranger whom I had first seen with Utterzook. The stranger was standing near the fence by my orchard, about one hundred yards distant from where I then was. Utterzook was carrying a plate, and the little boy had a pitcher. The gong rang for dinner, and I went into the house. I recollect that Utterzook wore a straw hat, and was dressed in blue coat and pantaloons. I noticed that he had boots on, and had turned up the bottoms of his pantaloons as it had rained that day. The stranger was a large-sized man, dark hair, side whiskers, and mustache. His eyes were dark. He would weigh, I suppose, 170 to 180 pounds. He wore light-colored pantaloons. He had on no coat when I saw him. 
When he was sitting down, I noticed that he wore gaiters, but I did not observe them more than simply to remember the fact that he had on gaiters such as gentlemen sometimes wear. When he spoke, I noticed he showed his teeth, and they appeared to be good. He wore a dark cap. I think he had no collar on. I noticed that he wore a ring upon one finger, but I could not describe it. Photograph heretofore introduced in evidence shown to witness. The man standing looks like the stranger whom I saw with Utterzook. I reside one quarter of a mile northwest of West Grove, on the road leading from West Grove to Jennerville, and about two miles from Jennerville. Bears Woods is about ten miles distant from my place. Cross-examined. I fix the day and date, because it was on the day I commenced mowing. There were two or three showers that day. They came into the barn for shelter from the rain. I have been acquainted with the Utterzook family ever since 1854, but I had not seen William for some seven or eight years or more. I made up my mind that it was he, and when I went into my house I told my wife there were a couple of strangers in the barn, and that I believed one of them was Jane Utterzook's son, William. I did not talk much with them. They did not seem to want to talk much. I tried to enter into conversation with them, but they did not wish to talk. The stranger mentioned having been to my cherry tree, and Utterzook said they had stepped into the barn out of the rain. I did not make myself known to Utterzook, nor ask him if he was William Utterzook. I was certain it was he. The stranger was a man of striking appearance, and I should have recognized him the next day amongst a hundred from his general appearance. End of section 36